Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. When I was training to be a minister, one of the professors at the seminary thought it would be a good idea to take all of the seminarians to a local funeral home to get a tour so that we would grapple with the theme of mortality. And in order to underscore the point, they took us into the basement of the funeral home in which bodies were prepared for display. Now, thankfully, there were no bodies in that particular basement on that particular day, but we did meet the man who was preparing the corpses for display. Didn't get catch his name, but he was clearly a local boy. Great, thick Pittsburgh accent, Fu Manchu, and a Bart Simpson t-shirt. And he was there describing, in a rather uh, common way, how bodies were prepared and what chemicals were used by him. And he said, I'll never lose my job because everyone is eventually a customer here. He was making light of something, but at the same time trying to, I think, communicate with some humor the uh, universal tragedy uh, that is before us all. And right here in our passage, we see that universal tragedy displayed. That is, we have two embalmings, two mummifications, one of Jacob slash Israel and the other of Joseph. And I'd like to actually focus on what happens between those embalmings. You know, it's interesting that Bible characters do not end their lives the way that many people in the movies do. They do not ride off into the sunset to live happily ever after. They die. And so we see their death. But before these two men die, we have a fascinating discourse between Joseph and his brothers. And I believe in this discourse, we see a good death. Insofar as any death could be conceived of as good, this is a good death rather than a bad death. Joseph shows us how to die right. Uh, And he shows us how to die right because he makes peace with his past and he also has trust for the future. Makes peace with his past and has trust for the future. So let me speak about that this evening. How does he make peace with his very complex and very painful past. Well, I think there are two ingredients to that piece, and they are pardon as well as perception. Pardon and perception. Now, in verse 15, there's, I think, a rather humorous scene where Joseph's brothers conspire yet again. They're terribly nervous now that dear old dad has passed away, that their brother, who had heretofore seemed rather forgiving, will turn rather aggressive and punish them all, maybe have them killed. And so they fabricate a story to prevent vengeance. And they start speaking to each other and to Joseph saying, hey guys, do you remember that one time that dad said that Joseph shouldn't kill all of us? Yeah, that was nice of him to say, wasn't it? And that if if Joseph did do that to us, that dad would cry in heaven? Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, Joseph hears them 
and makes this response. He doesn't call them out. Maybe he didn't know, but he, he makes this response in verse 17. I encourage you to read it along with me. This is halfway through verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We see in this passage pardon as well as perception. Let me get to pardon first. So Joseph had, years prior, already forgiven his brothers. But he needed now at this critical moment when the great patriarch had died to restate that same forgiveness. In other words, forgiveness is not something that we naturally accept very easily because we live in a quid pro quo world where everything is a bargain, everything is a deal, everything is conditional. Right? You don't get paid unless you work. Right? It's very hard to get somebody to love you if you don't act lovingly toward them. And so that's why we come to church, by the way, to hear time and time again that we really are loved, that we are treasure, that we are forgiven, because it's easy to believe everything else. Uh, and so they need to know again that they really are safe and secure from all alarms. And what's interesting is that Joseph not only gives them audible mercy and forgiveness. He displays it. It's a full display. We see in this passage that he weeps. He comforts them. He speaks kindly to them. He says that he's not God. He doesn't have the right to take away their lives. And then he promises not only to care for them, but for their children. Now, Within an ancient framework, it would be quite customary that if you did something dastardly to somebody, that they would not only come back for vengeance against you, but they would punish your children too. They would not only eradicate you, but eradicate your family. And here, Joseph, the sinned against one, offers pardon not only for his brothers, but also a benefit to them and their children. It's remarkable given that Joseph experienced the worst kind of betrayal, a murderous plot being treated inhumanely, uh, sold as a, a, a slave, made a prisoner for years. How does he do this? How do you forgive? And it's a question we all need to consider. How do you forgive not the little things in life, not the, the idiosyncrasies of your spouse or your children when they're terribly annoying, but how do you forgive the thing that nearly destroyed you? Uh, how do you let that go? Well, I think there's a secret to pardon, and we see it in Joseph. And that secret is a different way of perceiving your own life. He had the gift of perception. And this was his unique perception. It really is a summary statement of the theological glory of the whole Joseph epic. And it's in verse 20. Please read it with me. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see two contrasting plans here. The same storyline, but two different ways of interpreting it. So there was the family plan and the God plan. The family plan was for evil. The God plan was for good. And I want you to notice how Joseph is dealing with the family part of it. He doesn't minimize the injustice of the moment, right? He doesn't say, you know, it's all right. We all make mistakes. We're all broken. We're all human. We've all tried fratricide from time to time, <laughs> right? 
<laughs> Some of you have wanted to. Um, no, w- what does he say? He calls it evil. He said what you tried was deeply evil. It was evil. But he doesn't stop there because Joseph has discovered in the midst of his own Rocky Horror Picture Show of Life, a second sight. He's able to see beneath the pain, beneath the pain. Um, So often we live in the first story of our lives, the, the things that are most evident and obvious, and so we have all these grievances against people that have done us wrong or or think we think they've done us wrong. But Joseph saw beneath his victimhood and beneath uh, his, um, his pain into something far more consequential. Now, when my wife and I are sick of cooking, which happens all the time, uh, we go to Timber Creek. You know what that is? Yeah, edge of town. And, uh, and they have decent food. But I think what my kids love the most about the place is right in front of the bar, there's a glass floor that you can walk on and see through down into where they brew the beer. So they have all the ingredients down there in the bins, and it's really fascinating. And our girls run across that and, and probably terrify and greatly annoy the waitresses who are like trying to carry trays and dodge my four-year-old. Um, but they get to see what's happening below. They get to see what's really going on, how things are prepared. They get that second sight. And that's what Joseph had, only on a much grander level, of course, where he could look at his experience, look past the ground floor of his pain into the brain of God. And he says, no, 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 I needed to suffer. I needed to get hurt. I needed to be shipped off. I needed to live in a foreign land with a foreign language and foreign deities and little statues everywhere. I needed to cope with this different culture because there came a moment where I needed to save a nation from starvation. It all needed to happen. And so you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, I I love this. I love this because it prevented Joseph, this perception, prevented Joseph from being reduced in his identity to a mere victim. He was a victim, but he wasn't only a victim. And I think we are born into a world, a jagged, cutting world, that victimizes us. Maybe we were born into poverty. Maybe it's our birth order and we were neglected. Uh, Maybe uh, people uh, evidenced racism toward us. Maybe we were born with a disability, physical or mental. Maybe we had a, a family that was unstable. Maybe we aren't as educated as the next person or didn't have opportunities for that sort of thing. Those injustices are very real and they're very important. But I find in our current cultural mood, uh, we are overly defined by our victimhood much of the time. Uh, And here's the danger of, of singularly focusing on oneself as a victim or identifying oneself as a victim. Well, there are two problems. Uh, One is that you're denying that you are a participant in the nightmare because it's not your fault. It's everything else around you. And that's simply not true, that we are victimizers as much as we are victims. Um, More than that, if you live with a status of victimhood, You either despair or, more likely, in our current mode, you become perpetually resentful of everyone around you who has done you wrong. And then the resentment becomes your slave master, and it owns you. It owns you. It becomes something, it's almost like a foreign agent that begins to possess you and alter your mood and your mode. 
This did not happen to Joseph, though, because while Joseph was a victim, he wasn't only a victim. His principal identity was son of God, child of God, prince of God, that he belonged to the highest and most loving authority. And that was the thing that defined Joseph. And so all of the other nightmares that occurred in his life did not speak the final word over him. And the same is true for you. So whatever you've come out of and whatever you're working through doesn't define you. Instead, your identity is wrapped up in God. And when you perceive that and you perceive that you're loved and forgiven and treasured by somebody beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, then you can become a fountain of grace and love to other people, which is what happened to Joseph. So his perception created his pardon. He was able to see that this was ordered by God for the well-being of many, and he was able to let his brothers off the hook. Now, notice also God's fascinating relationship to evil in this passage. I think it's interesting anyway. Joseph did not say to his brothers, what you did you meant for evil, and God will make it right someday. God will obliterate evil from the world. No, instead what he says is, oh no, God took your evil plans and made them good. This is the God who takes evil, makes evil into its opposite. So he's the God who takes the swords and beats them into plowshares, so to speak. Um, you know, within a fallen world, God is limited to fallen tools. And he uses the plots and mechanisms of a toxic world to unmake toxicity. Um, this method of taking wickedness and making it into goodness is most gloriously displayed in Isaiah's prediction regarding Jesus Christ. Because Isaiah, as he looks down the tunnel of history, sees that there will come a time in which this Messiah figure is crushed and defeated and obliterated by life. And this is what he says about the suffering Christ. We thought him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. That was our opinion. When we looked at him, we thought this is a man whom God hates. But, Isaiah continues, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins, and by his wounds, we are healed. So we see something evil, or evidently evil, that brings about the most glorious good. And it's true of the story of Joseph, true of the story of Jesus, that God takes the darkest hell and makes it into the brightest heaven. In Joseph, he saves a nation. In Jesus, he saves the world. And so Joseph comes to a place in his life where he's at peace with his past, because he can pardon ruthlessly terrible people. Let them off the hook, because he has a perception that God used his pain for greater glory. But there's also trust for the future. So peace with the past and now trust for the future. This is verse 24. I invite you to look at, look at it with me. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Notice the language of visitation that's mentioned twice. Mentioned twice. Joseph makes a prediction. I'm done, but our story is not. My life is over. Yours is just beginning. And as he's looking down and prophesying into his future, he essentially tells his children, God already lives in your future. God already dwells there. 
all the promises that we've heard from our grandparents, promises that have not been made true to this point, will certainly be made true. You will not live in Egypt forever. That's why you need to take my body with you. He's making a statement that he believes that he, too, in his bones, will experience an exodus. And of course, this visitation came true time and time again. God visited Israel at the burning bush. God visited Israel at Mount Sinai. God visited Israel in the wilderness in the pillar of fire and in manna from heaven. God visited Israel with water from the rock. God visited Israel in the defeat of the Canaanites. I mean, it goes on and on. God keeps visiting, keeps dropping by like a mother-in-law, unexpectedly pounding at the door time and time again, invading his people, invading their home. Uh, And the message that Joseph is giving his children and his brothers is something like this. God is not a fading father like me. God is not a fading father like Jacob who just died. God isn't ever mummified. God is the one who lives and lives forevermore. His person and plans outlive us. He's already walked this way. And how does Joseph know this? Well, he knows it because of the promise that was spoken of old, because, but he also knows it because of his own experience. He shifted from prison to the second most loftiest position in the world, and he regards that as an act of God. And he's right. And so he says, trust. Trust that God will visit you, that if he made a vow, he'll keep it. He won't run out on you, and he won't die. He'll make good on his promise. And ultimately, we know from this side of the text that God would visit his people more closely than anyone had ever expected. In fact, God would intertwine himself with a human body, a human mind, a human brain. He would be born into a lower middle class family with an earthly father, an earthly father who had the name of Joseph. And very much like the Old Testament Joseph, this God-man who's intertwined himself with our lot, this God-man would be rejected by his brothers, stripped of his seamless garment, condemned on false charges, forsaken by his friends. But unlike Joseph, who escaped the clutches of death from his enemies, he would be slaughtered by them, in public, naked, humiliated. And unlike Joseph, his embalming, his mummification, was bizarrely interrupted. He wasn't destined to stay dead. Not all Bible characters are. This is God's supreme visitation. To quote the Apostle Paul, Christ died for your sins and rose again for your justification. And so Joseph learned, if you will, to relax, to commend his future to God, because he believed that he was faulty and he would falter, but God lacked those qualities. You know, each of us will die without having fixed our lives and without having fixed our world. I always feel bad for college graduates and high school graduates whenever they have to listen to speeches at baccalaureates or graduations. People that are functional cheerleaders getting up in front of you telling you how you're going to change the world. Oh, it's so abusive. Um, I mean, you won't and you don't have to. Uh, and, that's, and, and if you really believe that, um, that, that message will become a great burden to you uh, because who are we after all? We are very limited creatures, and we are sinners. And even if we have the greatest plans in the world, much of our plans will go undone. If you don't believe me, try fixing up your house sometime. 
Yeah, you have work to do, don't you? Yeah, I know, I know. Got to clean that basement. Um, And much of our labor seems in vain. You know, things don't go the way that we thought they would. And so my question to all of us is simply this. Can we trust that all shall be well in the repairing, healing hands of heaven? That is, do we trust the track record, not of ourselves, but of Jesus Christ, and that he, and not we, has the power to remake all things? And can we, therefore, let go because we entrust the future to him and not our best laid plans? So Joseph teaches us what it means to die well, to die with amended life. He makes peace with his past, and he has trust for the future. So what about you? And what about me? Because someday, and hopefully it's quite far off, your body will be wheeled into the basement of a funeral home where a man with a Fu Manchu and a Bart Simpson (laughs) t-shirt will inject your lifeless veins with embalming fluid and place your body in an open display case. Almost everything will stop mattering at that point. Our complaints about the speed limit, our opinions regarding health care, our views on infant baptism, our squabbles with our siblings, our tastes in decorating, it's all gone. And most of our belongings that we have treasured, that we think our loved ones will treasure, will end up in a Salvation Army or in a rented dumpster. And so when all is stripped away, what will your legacy be? Because the only legacy that lasts, that matters, that reflects God's glory is one that makes peace with the past through rampant forgiveness and trusts God for the future that he will handle it. And so Joseph dies. And yet Joseph lives. He rests in the strong and healing hands of his descendant, a man who named himself the resurrection and the life. Well, that's your destiny too. You have a secure place within the everlasting arms. So friends, repent and believe the good news. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your